The following podcast is a Dear Media production. This is Being Bumo, a podcast for the modern parent that wants to be the best version of themselves while being the best parents they can be for their kids. We'll be spotlighting parents and experts who are not only inspiring, but also willing to share with us how it really is. Because as we all know, parenting can be equally as rewarding as it is challenging. We're here to make your life easier, a little less stressful, and help you navigate through this complex thing called parenting. Hi, Boomos. Welcome back to another episode of Being Boomo. If you are a new mama or a mama-to-be, this episode is for you. Today, I have Katie Ferraro, a baby-led weaning and fortified fam, and also the creator of 100 First Foods. Katie is not only a mom of seven, yes, I said seven, but she's also a registered dietitian specializing in the approach of starting solid foods known as baby-led weaning. Her passion is helping parents and caregivers give their babies a safe start to solid food, raise independent eaters, and prevent picky eating. I follow her on Instagram and she gives the best tips for little eaters. And honestly, I wish I had found her earlier when I was actually transitioning my girls into solid foods. I struggled immensely with solids to both my girls. They both love their milk so much and did not want to eat solids. But we are going to get into our conversation. I am so excited to have you here with me today, Katie. Welcome to Being Bumo. Thank you so much for the invite. I'm excited to chat with you. Yeah, I have a million questions, but the very first question I have to ask you is, as a mom of seven kids, what did you do the first thing you did this morning? I went to the gym today, and I'm that's not normally every day, but today I did because I haven't been great about it. Wow. See, the busier you are, the more kids you have, the more time you carve out for yourself. Is that true? I am in a better mood. I am nicer to my kids. I am nicer to myself. I am more productive if I work out in the morning. It's the only thing that makes me shower and get ready. Like if I don't work out, I won't get ready for the day. So there's kind of that too. What time do you do you go to the gym? I go to a 5.15 class at my like suburban old lady gym. It's like a boot camp thing. I love it. I love it because I'm actually one of the younger people there. In my community, I'm one of the older people. So I love my old lady gym because I'm like young to them. You're like real cool and real hip to them. I love it. I used to work out at 5 a.m. I haven't in like a year. So this is giving me inspiration to start again. I'm like a four-year-old. I lose it about like three to 4 p.m. I am not productive and there's no way I'm going to work out. Plus I like like unwinding and having a glass of wine, and then you're never going to work out after that. So Exactly. So tell us a little bit about yourself and how you actually started baby-led weaning. And what is baby-led weaning? So I'm a registered dietitian. I'm a mom of seven, but I had my kids really fast. So I had um, I did fertility treatments for all of my children, which people inevitably will ask because I had seven kids in three years. So my husband and I struggled to get pregnant which by the way, he wasn't getting pregnant. He was just like dealing with me trying to get pregnant. We <laughs> ended up doing IVF with our oldest. And when my oldest turned four months of age, I just did what my doctor said. I'm, I'm a college nutrition professor. I worked in nutrition for like 15 years. And I was like, the doctor said, start solids. So I started solids and we did spoon feeding and it was terrible. Like we struggled so much with spoon feeding to the point. I remember once my mom, who's also a dietitian and has six kids and my sister who has six kids, 
they invited me to go on a play date around lunchtime with my baby. And I remember lying and saying I couldn't go, not because I didn't want to, but because I didn't want them to see me struggling to feed my own daughter. Cause like who can't feed their baby, let alone like what kind of dietitian mom, like spoon feeding was a disaster for us. And I just felt like an utter failure. So at around that time, when I was really struggling with all of these feeding frustrations, we found out we were pregnant with quadruplets. Now we had been doing fertility treatment. So I knew the option for multiples was there, but not four. And I was not expecting that. And I remember the first thing that went through my head when I saw the four on the ultrasound was like, how am I going to feed four babies at one time when I can't even feed the one baby I have at home right now? So fast forward, the quads were born at 34 weeks, which is kind of a miracle because it's like average 28 weeks for gestation. So I was very grateful that they made it that long, but I was also very scared. And I spent most of the time when they were in the NICU really studying alternatives to traditional spoon feeding. Cause I was like, no way when I get home and these babies are ready to start that I'm going to force feed them and feel like a failure for four babies at one time. So we did baby led weaning, which is an alternative to traditional spoon feeding. And that's where babies learn how to feed themselves age appropriate, wholesome foods from their first bites. Baby led weaning was such a transformative experience for our family that I actually shifted the entire focus of my nutrition career to only do baby led weaning. And so we went on to have one more set of twins, Gus and Hannah, they're three now. I did baby led weaning with them as well and really started refining this approach that I created back in 2016 called the 100 first foods approach where babies learn how to eat a hundred different foods before they turn one. And now I've taught tens of thousands of families how to do it through my digital programs and courses that I teach and sell to parents and caregivers. And it's all baby led weaning all day long. And I love it. That's incredible. I mean, I have a few questions just within like what you just told me right there. So first of all, you're the very first person I've ever met that had quads. I don't know if you know anyone else besides yourself. Well, I from Instagram, I know like a ton of them. So I actually think it's like normal to me, but I realize it's not normal. I mean, you're the first that I know of. And how was that experience compared to carrying one? I'm glad I got to have a singleton just to know, A, to have a vaginal delivery, which I was like, whatever, I don't need to do that again. But it, just to have like that experience of like, because everything went kind of crazy after that with the quads. It was really scary because there's a 50% chance of major handicap with a quadruplet pregnancy. And it's due almost entirely to preterm labor. Average gestational period for quads is 28 weeks. So every week I went past 28 weeks, I started to be a little bit less fearful. And then when we got into the thirties, I was like, oh my gosh, this might actually not be terrible. And my quads were born all between two and three pounds at 34 weeks gestation. And they're all totally healthy. And it's totally a miracle because we got a lot of pressure to reduce down to two during the pregnancy. I mean, that's the standard protocol, but we decided against that. I know that's not a decision that every family would make, but I'm so grateful that they're here and that they're healthy and they drive me crazy, but they are little miracles to the point that we went on and I wanted one more. I'm from a family of six. So I transferred two more at the last IVF and we got two babies, twins, Gus and Hannah. So that was actually kind of easy compared to the quadruplets, to be honest. Wow. Incredible. I mean, you are, no one ever should complain about being busy anymore after meeting you. Well, you know, I think it's actually easier to be honest. I'm glad I had twins at the end. Cause I was like, once you're doing it once and you have a system down, I'm like, we, we always take my sister's kids. We always have extra kids around. People are like, what do you mean you have extra kids? I'm like, it's just, we're all set up for it. We have a 12 passenger van. I got a big table. I'm making food for everyone. Like what's a few more kids. I kind of always had that mentality, which I think sometimes my husband's like, he's from a family of four kids. So that's a little crazy, but we make it work. We're hanging in there. 
I love it. Once I became a mom, family duties took over and I had less time to get everything done in a day and no time for myself. I mean, does it sound familiar, guys? I just used this app called Be Busy to book a house cleaning service and it was so easy and convenient. Be Busy was built by a busy mom for busy moms because she knows how valuable our time is. You can book services from balloon artists to housekeepers and it's so fast and easy. There are personalized services on Be Busy from chefs and personal trainers. Be Busy has the services you need to make life easier. The best part is all the pricing is right there in the app so I don't have to search on the internet or call a bunch of places. I absolutely love the easy to use platform and being able to book services through an app I trust. Be Busy saves me so much time and it's so convenient for busy moms constantly on the go. Download Be Busy, B-E-E, B-I-Z-Y on the App Store or Google Play Store and get the services you need. I used to care so much about portraying a perfect life and acting like everything was okay when really things were far from it. I was secretly battling anxiety, depression, and an eating disorder. So it was a lot. I'm Victoria Garrick, former Division I athlete, mental health advocate, and host of RealPod. Every Wednesday, I sit down with celebrities, athletes, entrepreneurs, and more to talk about the inner thoughts and feelings that we're all struggling with. So leave the filters and facetunes at the door and join me on RealPod. Now, let's go on to baby led weaning. You talked about it. You obviously, your world kind of like shifted once you discovered baby led weaning. Is it something that you kind of figured out on your own or did it exist before? So baby led weaning as a term was coined by Jill Rapley, who's a PhD, the co-author of the original like baby led weaning book that many of your audience members might have read. And I read that book and I thought it was amazing. And her philosophy about you know, babies being autonomous and this was what they were designed to do. And why do we take their autonomy away from them and push a spoon into their mouth when they could do it by themselves if we just wait till six months when they're ready to start solid foods? Like that was all very like, yes, I get this. That makes sense. But when it actually came to the, how do you do baby led weaning? And you have to think that the original baby led weaning book was written even before the advent of social media. So in an era of social media, when I was trying to learn about it, I was like, there's nothing about how to do this. And so when I started kind of figuring it out on my own trial and error, and then when I put together this system to get the babies to try a hundred different foods, I didn't even realize at the time what I was doing. I went back and actually like retroactively created a program out of it because you know, the visual of four babies feeding themselves is really powerful, but the foods they were eating are foods that from a nutrition standpoint, I knew were perfectly fine and healthy and safe, like beets and sardines, but that was really eye-opening to a lot of people in my social channels that were like, oh, I thought babies just ate white rice cereal. And then somehow at one year of age, we expect them to eat like table foods with the rest of the family. Like people forget about the importance of weaning and allowing babies to learn how to eat. And that's really what baby led weaning does. It focuses on how babies learn to eat, not so much being stressed out and frustrated about how much they're eating. I see. So how do babies eat? We are all kind of conditioned by, I don't know, like maybe our parents or people that we learned from through their parenting that baby eats what we give them. But you're saying that spoon feeding, is it necessarily, is it unnatural? Is it bad? Like, what are your takes on that? Sure. Some people think that Baby led weaning and spoon feeding, like they're, they're two separate entities and never the two shall meet. And the reality is that purees are an important texture for babies to master. 
they're just not the only texture that babies can eat. And so when we feed babies pureed food for weeks and months on end, they're missing out on other important nutrition, taste, food, flavor, and texture experiences. So we can offer babies purees and babies can learn how to eat from a spoon starting at six months of age. But the difference with baby led weaning is we do a preloaded spoon approach where you actually can put the puree on the spoon, put the handle of the baby spoon in the baby's hand, a short, fat, round handle is what we're looking for, not those long-handled spoons. That's for parents to shove food in the baby's mouth. But we don't need to do that because they can actually feed themselves purees along with other soft, solid strips of food that they can pick up by themselves even before they have their pincer grasp, which they don't at six and seven months of age. And they can actually feed themselves the safe, wholesome, cooked foods that parents are providing. And in that way, we're letting them learn how to eat a variety of different foods. They're driving their own intake. They're pacing it. There's all this wonderful research that helps support autonomy and independent eating. It can help prevent picky eating. It may even play a role on obesity and overweight management and avoidance of those issues. So a lot of this is tied to allowing babies to do what they can at the right developmental phases. But we don't start at four months of age because babies are not ready to eat anything except breast milk or formula until they're closer to six months of age. That makes total sense. So they could almost skip past, I mean, not skip past because they, they're eventually going to have to learn how to eat from a spoon, right? But it's almost like the precursor to learning actually how to use a spoon, right? Oh, certainly they learn how to dip with a spoon and scoop with a spoon. And it's not perfect, right? They don't wake up on their six-month birthday and know how to do this, but they also don't wake up on their one-year birthday knowing how to eat table foods with the rest of the family, which is what we want. We use this weaning period between six months to 12 months as the opportunity to give baby lots of practice. And eventually food will start supplanting milk meaning breast milk or formula, as the primary source of nutrition. But it's this gradual continuum. It doesn't happen overnight. What would you say that the most common mistake parents actually make with their babies when it comes to food? I think it's having unreasonable expectations about the quantity of food that a baby will eat. And I know I'm a dietitian. I have a lot of dietitian colleagues and a lot of dietitian friends who are like, but they're not getting enough iron. There's not enough calories. Or they need to have two ounces of starch and three ounces of meat. It doesn't work like that. They don't know how to eat yet. We can't expect them, nor do we need them to eat a set amount of food. We need to give them the opportunities to practice learning how to eat. So there's this wonderful theory called the division of responsibility in feeding theory. And it was created by Ellen Satter, who's a leading feeding specialist, dietitian, therapist. And she reminds us that we have a division of responsibility. It goes for many things in parenting, but it's so helpful in feeding that you as the parent have three jobs. You are responsible for what the baby eats, where the baby eats, and when the baby eats. But ultimately, it's up to the baby to determine how much or even whether they eat. And so when parents start freaking out, oh my gosh, my baby's not eating or they didn't eat enough. Hey, chill. It's not your job. Your job, you got to pick the wholesome foods. You got to pick the safe space, the high chair for the baby to eat. You got to pick the right time at mealtime. But it's not your job to determine how much or even whether the baby eats. That's the baby's job. If we can you know, just stay in our lane and do our job, takes a lot of stress and pressure off of parents. So I always try to remind them whether or not the baby eats or how much they eat, not your job, but you got to let them have a lot of practice so they can get there. That's almost like reversing the roles that we always learned about babies, right? Because we're giving them the power to choose how much they eat, right? Yes. And you said it perfectly. I just had the opportunity to interview Jill Rapley on my podcast 
about the history of baby led weaning and then the future where she sees it going. This is the founding philosopher of baby led weaning. She doesn't like when you say that she invented baby led weaning, but as a term, she did. Because for centuries, like prior to the advent of commercial baby food, which has only been around for 100 years, like what do you think cave mom fed her baby? Like she didn't go to Target in that aisle of fake food, including shelf-stable yogurt, which is so gross if you think about baby yogurt. But like they fed modified versions of the same foods the rest of the family ate. Like this is what babies were designed to do. Why during breastfeeding and bottle feeding, we talk about, oh, follow your baby's hunger cues and fullness cues. And when the baby's full, they turn their head away from the bottle or the breast. Like when we transition to solid foods and they're full, they should stop eating. We shouldn't be continually shoving food in their mouth because we determined you need to have this three ounces that's in this pouch. It's an arbitrary amount. So we kind of want to continue the baby's autonomy because also then we expect them at one year of age to be independent eaters and toddlers, but we just took away their autonomy for six months if we spoon fed them. It doesn't really pan out. Like allowing babies to do what they were designed to do and capable of doing at the right age. And it's all about the right age because babies at four and five months of age, nutritionally, they don't need anything except breast milk or formula, but also physiologically, they're not safe to swallow anything except breast milk or formula. So we don't start until they're ready. Makes sense. So what is the age that you could start? Six months of age is when most babies are showing the signs of readiness to eat. Now that comes with a caveat. If you have a baby who is premature, we use their adjusted age. So I'll use the case of my quadruplets who were born at 34 weeks gestation. I waited until they were six months plus six weeks of age before we even thought about starting solid foods. That was, they were six weeks premature. So six months plus six weeks. And then showing the other signs of readiness to feed, which means the most important one is the ability to sit relatively independent. You've got to be able to demonstrate that baby has that core strength and the trunk strength to facilitate a safe swallow. You cannot learn how to eat slumped over. So we want babies sitting relatively independent. That happens around the six month mark. They'll be showing interest in food and mouthing different objects. And then also that tongue thrust reflex, which is a protective mechanism that younger babies have where they push everything out of their mouth, that starts to dissipate or recede. And then when all those things join together, it's generally after the six month mark or six month adjusted mark, that's when we are safe to start solid foods. That's really good to know. What, and this is something that I went through with my youngest, Colette, she's two now. She loves her milk so much. She still loves her milk. And I struggle with that because I know that she would be eating so much more solids and just regular food, really, if she wasn't drinking so much milk. But it comforts her. It makes her happy. And I really have a hard time taking that away from her. Obviously, she's not on the bottle anymore, but just even with like a milk cup, she'll like down it. So do you have any tips there? Yes, certainly. So normally I would recommend against counting numbers. We don't count calories for kids. We don't measure foods for them. But when it comes to milk, in my experience, the two biggest things that sabotage toddler intake at mealtime are milk and snacks. And when it comes to milk, parents are like, but wait, I don't get it. It's a good thing, right? Like even my own sister-in-law, I remember she'd taken her daughter was three to a pediatric appointment. She's like, whoa, she jumped way up on the growth curve and I can't figure it out. And we started breaking it down. And as we're talking, the toddler's walking around with a 12 ounce Nalgene sippy cup of milk. And I was like, how much milk is she having? And she's like, oh, I don't know. And we added it up and she was having almost 40 ounces of milk a day, which from a number standpoint matters because the American Academy of Pediatrics set recommendations of 16 to 24 ounces. That's two to three cups of milk a day for one year old and beyond. And it is maybe important in your case to be measuring it just because while milk is a good thing, if your family eats cow milk or drinks it, meaning you don't have cow's milk allergy or you're not vegan, 
too much of a good thing is not a good thing. And milk is great with a lot of nutrition, but it doesn't have iron in it. So what it ends up doing is filling up the toddler and displacing other important nutritious foods. So if there's a way to dial it back on the milk, and if it's a volume thing, you could go so far as to water down milk, which some parents would say, well, she never want to water down something nutritious. But the point is, if she likes a lot of fluid and we could cut it in half, the actual you know, feeling of fullness. Now that's still taking up room in her stomach. So we might also want to work on kind of dialing back the volume as well as like the amount or setting it at mealtime where we eat food first and then we have milk after. If at the end of your meal, you want to drink milk, that's great because I know you've already gotten those nutritious foods in there. So maybe you could maybe work on getting milk after meals, which is kind of a good pattern that we like to start with babies as they move towards the one-year mark. And then even after that, food first, because we know she knows how to drink, right? Like your baby knows how to drink, your toddler knows how to drink, but we want to make sure they're getting most of their nutrition from food and not from milk. So maybe just like eyeball it for a couple of days, like how many ounces she's actually getting and is it possible to get it between 16 and 24 ounces? And I've even worked with families where we make a tighter range you know, 16 to 20 ounces, or there's lots of families that do perfectly fine without milk nutritionally. But if it's something your daughter likes, maybe you could just work on dialing back the volume that she's drinking in a day. How about snacks? You mentioned snacks as well, which is- um... I just like to remind parents that it's okay to run a snack-free household. I do. COVID was the best thing that ever happened because they weren't around other kids who were begging for snacks all the time. We eat three meals a day and I'm on a schedule because I have running an operation with seven kids. We eat breakfast at seven and lunch at 12 and dinner at five. Now, if we're going to go to my mom's house and I know dinner is going to be at six, they're going to lose it. And then my mom's going to be like, your, your kids are freaking out. And then she'll give them a snack and then they don't eat any dinner. Like I will put snacks in as needed, but it is perfectly fine, especially for babies. Babies do not need snacks. When they're learning how to eat between six and 12 months of age, we feed them one to two times a day at six to seven months, two to three times a day at eight to nine months. We love to see 10 month old babies end up eating three meals a day. The milk they have in between meals which is breast milk or formula prior to age 12 months and cow's milk. If you do that after 12 months, that's the snack. And I think if you can keep that under control, you'll realize, wow, they'll be able to recognize and respond to their hunger cues. And how should children respond to hunger? By eating the wholesome foods that you're putting out in a safe space at prescribed meal times. I would love to run a snack-free household and that will be my goal because that sounds amazing because my kids are snack monsters, but I feel like they will have multiple meltdowns. But I feel like if and when I do implement that, they'll probably eat a lot more in actual mealtime setting. And it's a very hard recommendation for working parents. I know that I work more than I should. And I have my aunt who helps me with the kids. I've worked really hard to get her on board with, please don't give them snacks all day because the very limited amount of time I get to spend with them at dinner and bedtime, I don't want to be fighting with them. And I don't want, it's not my job to make them eat. But if I did spend time making a wholesome dinner, which I do sometimes, and sometimes we eat convenience food like everyone else, and that's fine too. But the point is at mealtime, I don't want to spend my time yelling at them. I want them to be hungry and eat their dinner but not because I'm yelling at them to do it. And removing snacks is the missing piece of the puzzle that, that helps our family. I know it doesn't work for every family, but I do want to empower the parents listening. You are the boss of the food situation at your house. Like I work with pediatricians and they're like, but the parents, the kids can be like, oh, but all my kids eat is McDonald's. And like, did the kids drive themselves through the drive-thru at McDonald's? <laughs> like, I get it. Like fast food is easy and convenient. We, everyone does it. That's fine. But like the parents are the ones who are setting the food guardrails. And so it is okay to change it in your house too. If you find your, gosh, we're really reliant on snacks and I'd like to cook more, but they're never going to eat it. 
what could I do to get them eat it, take away some of the snacks or alter the snack so that it's a fruit, something that they're going to satisfy that need for a snack, get some fiber, get some valuable nutrition, but not get 500 calories right before dinner because they're not going to eat dinner if they just filled up on goldfish. Exactly. So what are some of the top, like your favorite foods that you would like to recommend when you're doing baby led weaning? Whatever foods your family eats, you can modify them to make them safe for baby led weaning. There is no one food that's better than the other. There's a few foods we stay away from hard and crispy and crunchy foods. We don't give honey to babies under one because there's a potential for botulism there. Most of the foods we stay away from, to be honest, are for to remove the choking risk, but I can teach families how to modify almost any food. With the exception, I always say flaming hot Cheetos and regular Dr. Pepper. That's kind of hard to work into a baby's diet, but the reality is like in Ethiopia, babies eat Ethiopian food. In Nepal, babies eat Nepalese food. Your mom fed your baby Korean food. I know that from chatting with you. And you were like, oh, I don't have to go make special foods. And that's what I love about baby led weaning is it allows your baby to start eating modified versions of the same foods the rest of your family eats. We don't add sugar, we don't add salt, and we can't feed super duper spicy food, but babies don't need to eat bland food. You found that out with your daughter, right? Your mom was like making different Korean food. And you're like, oh, they can eat this. We just need to make it safe. So I would say whatever foods your family eats is actually the best food for your baby. Which is also strangely comforting to know because I think there's such an insane amount of pressure for new moms to like change up their entire lifestyle. Dude, I think that aisle at Target is so, like I remember being so intimidated by it as a new time mom. Oh, we had it so good with like breast milk and formula. Now I got to go buy all these weird puffs and pouches. And no, you don't. You can totally bypass that entire aisle. There's nothing in there that babies need and it's expensive and oftentimes nutritionally incomplete. There's added sugar in so many baby foods, which we know babies shouldn't have added sugar until two years of age. And even after that, we should limit it. Like it can be really confusing. I, it's like one less thing to worry about. And my mom thinks it's asinine that I have an entire career business platform community dedicated to teaching babies how to eat real food. She's like, we always did that. I'm like, no, you didn't. I know you, my mom was an era when they had, they used to sell baby food desserts. Thank God they don't do it anymore. But like, think about that. Like babies don't need dessert. And there was like, I remember like blueberry cobbler in a Gerber jar, baby food jar. Like that was a thing. Like that's not good for babies either. Yeah. So just give them what you would eat, but obviously nothing with like crazy amounts of salt and sugar and all of that stuff. I do advise parents to like, you need to educate yourself. Like sometimes parents are scared about choking. And the research shows us that babies are at no higher risk of choking if they start with a baby led approach than with traditional spoon feeding, provided that parents are educated about reducing choking risk. Like you can't go feeding your baby raw slices of apple. They will choke on it, but I can show you how to make apple safe. So I encourage parents to educate themselves. I teach a free online workshop called Baby Led Weaning for Beginners. And it's all about how to get your baby to eat a hundred foods before turning one without you having to spoon feed purees or buy pouches. And in an hour workshop, parents are like, oh my gosh, I feel so much more confident in my baby's ability to feed these foods. It's just about getting education. And I would encourage your audience to make sure that's always coming from a credentialed feeding professional, not some Instagram site or some blogger mom who fed her own baby that way, which is fine, but, but doesn't have the requisite credentials to be giving feeding advice. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Are there any foods that parents should avoid when baby led weaning? So we don't do any hard, crunchy, or crispy foods for babies. Even toddlers can be challenged with those. So apples are a great example. If you look at the data for emergency non-fatal 
emergency department admissions in pediatrics, like apples are right up there with hard candies. And parents are always like, who would feed their kid a Jolly Rancher? I know you, mom, didn't give the baby a Jolly Rancher, but either the baby was crawling around and found the Jolly Rancher on the floor or another older kid, oh, wouldn't it be fun if we gave this candy or this gum to the baby? So they get things in their mouth that parents didn't give them. So hard candies can certainly be a choking hazard. We don't do popcorn, for example, um, thick globs of peanut butter. You want to introduce peanuts early and often for babies to prevent peanut allergy, but we don't do thick globs of peanut butter. But there's safer ways you can make these foods safer. But we do stay away from added sugars. I mentioned we don't do honey, which is also an added sugar, so it's not something we should be feeding our baby anyway. Um, but a lot of the foods we avoid can be modified to be made safe for baby led weaning. I don't do really spicy foods, but it feel very comfortable to season your baby's foods with different spices as long as we just minimize the sodium and certainly no added sugars for babies. I remember that just reminded me of a story when Colette was, um, I don't know if you're familiar with kimchi, but it's like this Korean uh, cabbage. It's really spicy and she really wants to try it. And I'm like, man, this is way too spicy for you, but she really wants to try it. So I gave it to her. And she was like chewing on it. And I was like, you like it? And then I don't know what happened, but it was like literally three minutes afterwards, I think it hit her and she just started crying like crazy uncontrollably. And I just couldn't stop laughing because it was such an after, like after three minutes, I think it finally hit her system, but it was hilarious and sad at the same time. But I think we forget like babies have already been exposed to a lot of these flavors, right? Like when you're pregnant, your baby is exposed to flavors via amniotic fluid. When you're breastfeeding, your baby is exposed to the flavors of the food you're eating through the breast milk. Like this is not like such a big deal. Like the spice was a new factor for her and she, you know, lives to talk about it. And the point is that we can offer our babies a wider variety of foods than most of us are inclined to. And babies can eat so many more foods than we give them credit for. That's comforting to know. When it comes to liquids, when should babies start drinking out of like an open cup versus like a sippy cup? So I'm a registered dietitian and I do do a large amount of work with other credentialed feeding experts. So everything I know about open cup drinking, I learned from speech language pathologists who specialize in infant feeding. And they're always reminding us that babies can learn to drink out of an open cup beginning at around six months of age. And we actually wow. want to skip the sippy cup. I have a baby led weaning podcast. And one of the most downloaded episodes is an episode I did with my friend and colleague, who's also a feeding expert and a speech language pathologist. And it's called six reasons to skip the sippy cup because it's bad for your baby's teeth. It promotes overconsumption. It actually interferes with their ability to meet other feeding milestones, other speech milestones. And I'll be honest with you, before I did this with my own twins, my last two Gus and Hannah, we went right from it always pumped and they were drinking out of a bottle and I went right from the bottle to the open cup and totally skipped the sippy cup. I never believed it could happen either, but it's amazing. Like watch videos of babies drinking out of an open cup. It's like the ultimate party trick. You take your baby to a party, put a little bit of breast milk or formula in there and they drink it by themselves. And the goal is by the time <laughs> they turn one that they can do that independently, but like they got to practice. So we start around six months of age, but if you didn't start then, you can start a little bit later, just five minutes after each meal and they will become proficient very quickly. That's so interesting. I mean, six months seems early, but I guess at that point, they're already learning how to like grab things and hold on to things. And they've been watching you for six months. Like they replicate what they see. And so when they see you eating and they see you drinking and sippy cups were created and invented by parents for parents with the sole purpose being to prevent spills. And if our goal is to raise independent eaters, yeah, there's going to be a little bit of spillage, but babies should be seated safely in their high chair when eating and drinking. So we don't want them running around with sippy cups. It's actually very dangerous if they tripped and fell. True. Now, 
You talk a lot about gagging, I've noticed. Is that a normal reflex for babies when they first start solids? I, I can't remember. I mean, I just feel like I had the fog, like the new mom fog, but I cannot remember if my kids gagged at some point, but it seems like it's quite common. Yes. And I would say that for parents who are considering, gosh, am I going to do spoon feeding or baby led weaning? The fear of choking is one of the biggest barriers to starting solid foods. But I always remind them the data shows us babies are at no higher risk of choking when you start solids with the baby led approach compared to traditional spoon feeding, provided that you're not offering choking risk foods. We only offer food when the baby is seated safely in the high chair. We want baby's feet resting flat on a solid footrest, which look at your high chair. Most of them do not have that. You're going to have to do some sort of DIY to make a footrest that your baby's feet are resting flat on. Some high chairs do have an adjustable foot plate, but we want to set baby up for success. And then the gagging is actually a natural and necessary part of learning how to eat. And gagging is very different from choking. So I do a lot of education, a lot of videos about this is what a gag is. This is what it looks like. This is how you react, which is you don't freak out and startle your baby or lunge at your baby because a six month old baby who is showing the other signs of readiness to feed, they can recover from a gag on their own. If you were to interfere and lunge at the baby, when someone lunges at you and you're scared, what do you do? You suck air in, which could cause that very harmless gag to become a very harmful choke if the food were to become lodged in the airway. So we let babies recover from a gag on their own. But I always encourage parents to know what to do in the event that your baby does choke. You should take an infant refresher CPR course before you start solid food. So in the off chance baby chokes, you have the CPR skills to intervene and save their life. But knowing the difference between gagging and choking is very important because one, gagging is a good thing when babies are learning how to eat and they all do it. But the other one, choking, is a potentially life-threatening thing and we can do a lot to minimize choking risk. I would imagine that when you do baby led weaning, you just have to realize that it will get messy and it's something that you know, that is healthy and good for the kids. But I would assume that parents might want to be prepared for that. So do you have any highly recommended product for parents that are looking to start baby led weaning? Absolutely. And the mess, I think after the choking risk is, or the fear of choking is a real big pain point for parents. But always remember parents, we need to step back and assess what are our goals here? Is the goal to prevent mess? No. The goal is to allow the baby to learn how to eat. And it's an incredible sensory experience when you're learning how to eat, right? There's tastes and there's smells and it sounds this way when you squish it. And if I put it in my mouth, it feels this way. Or if I put it in my hair, it feels this way. Or when I'm drinking out of a cup and a little bit of it dribbles down my face, it feels this way. Like it's this full sensory experience. So we don't want to interfere in that. We don't want to wipe our babies when they're eating. Like, how would you feel if you were trying to learn how to eat oatmeal and this lady kept like attacking you with her washcloth? <laughs> like now, but granted, the second that meal is over, I take the baby to the sink under running warm water, wash their face off, wash their hands off, dry them with a clean towel, put them somewhere safe and get right to cleaning up that food mess because dry food mess is terrible but you can also minimize the mess by doing what's called a splash mat, which is a large piece of, you can buy it, you can make it, whatever it is of material that you put underneath the high chair. If it's clean and sanitary and the baby drops food on it, you can pick it right up off the splash mat, recycle it back into the baby's mat or bowl or plate. And then that way you're actually working to reduce food waste as well. But if you can just remember the goal is not to prevent the mess, but we can work to minimize the mess that will kind of help. Even if you're super type A, I'm super type A and I like everything to be clean, but you sometimes just got to come to terms with, I want my baby to learn how to feed themselves. So I don't have to do it. And I don't want to be a short order cook and I don't want to deal with picky eating. So I'm willing to deal with a little bit of food mess during these really important formative months. 
So have you seen actually like differences of people that have done baby led weaning and how their kids are now versus maybe someone that didn't? Do you notice kind of a trend or maybe they're less picky? Have you noticed any of these signs? Yes, certainly. It actually bears out in the literature as well. We know that baby led weaning and allowing children to become independent eaters from their first bites when we're taking advantage of that flavor window. It's this period from about six months to resources differ, but somewhere between 12, 15, or even 18 months where babies will like and accept a wide variety of foods. You take advantage of that, the picky eating, while it's inevitable, the babies have some degree of picky eating, always starting in the second year of life but it's significantly less problematic the more foods they have under their belt. So when I created the 100 First Foods program in 2016, the takeaway point was babies who are traditionally spoon-fed only have 10 or 15 foods by the time they turn one. And if you lose those 10 or 15 foods to picky eating after that, that becomes a very challenging child to feed. But if your baby has 100 different foods that they can eat and you lose 10 or 15 of those foods to picky eating, big freaking deal, right? You've still got 85 or 90 foods left that your baby will eat. So we need to push their palate, as we say, by introducing a greater variety of foods. And we see it bearing out in toddlerhood. Yes, they might be a little picky, but if, if for any parent that has children who are very picky eaters, baby led weeding is cool because it's one of the few things that actually appeals to a second time mom. They'll be like, I don't need any of that junk that was on my registry, the first baby, but I would be interested with this baby in doing things differently with feeding so I don't get a picky eater because it's really challenging to deal with a picky eater. And actually even having a toddler who's picky when you do baby led weaning, it's a great opportunity for that toddler to be exposed to new foods and involved in food preparation and talking to the baby. This is, you know, you're about to eat. What color is this? What does it smell like? We can get those toddlers reinvolved in food via baby led weaning with the younger sibling as well. So it's like win, win, win across the whole family. Even my husband always loses weight when we do baby led weaning. He's like, because we never eat at restaurants because you're always making these foods with no salt. I'm like, yeah, we save money, we save sanity, and he even loses some weight, which is kind of an unintended secondary side effect. Love it. So um, just to end it all, I just feel like there's so much more information that we could cover here, but where can people find you? Is there anything that you're working on that, that we should be aware of? And yeah, where can they find you? Well, I love to share like your people are podcast people if they're listening here. So I love to share. I have a, a top rated parenting podcast called Baby Led Weaning Made Easy. That's on all the platforms where you listen to podcasts or blwpodcast.com. And then I also teach a baby led weaning for beginners workshop. And that's a free online workshop. I teach a couple of times each week. I give everyone on that free workshop a copy of my 100 First Foods list. So if you like are running out of ideas to feed your baby and you can sign up for this week's workshop times, if you go to babyledweaning.co. Awesome. And then you're also on Instagram and I know you have quite a bit of a, a following there. And I mean, I personally love says the lady that. with 1.3 million followers. <laughs> I like, I have a, a large digital community dedicated to baby led weaning, but I'm there every day teaching about how to give your baby a safe start to solid foods. And that's on Instagram at baby led wean team. Amazing. Well, thank you so, so much for coming on. I personally learned a lot here and oh God, I wish I, I discovered you before both of my kids. Well, I'm so glad your listeners can learn about baby led weaning and thank you for covering this topic because it sometimes gets kind of like, oh, it's such a judgy thing. And people say you can't do this. And I really focus all my content on 
highlighting all of the foods that babies can eat because they can eat so many more foods than we give them credit for. We just need to learn how to do it safely. Well, thank you so much. And we will talk soon. Thank you, Chriselle. Okay, bye. I hope you guys enjoyed today's episode. If you liked it, please take a second to rate, review, and subscribe. It really is the best way to support the show. Also, if you want to see more of us, head over to our Instagram and follow us there at Bumo Parent. And to learn more about Bumo Brain Virtual School, follow us at Bumo Brain or head over to bumobrain.com. Thank you guys so much for listening and I'll see you guys next week.